My friend and fellow actor Bart Chateau joins me today in a very personal and honest conversation about how we actors can stand in our own way and why ultimately the drive and motivation to keep going has to come from us. This is our job. Our job as actors is to audition, you know, and without, and unfortunately, without expecting any results. Hello and welcome to Why I'll Never Make It, featuring stories and conversations with fellow creatives about the realities of life in the performing arts. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones. Please go to whyillnevermakeit.com to take this season's podcast survey and to give feedback and input on this podcast. Now, most actors will say there is a certain kind of joy and satisfaction in doing a revival of a classic piece of theater, giving new life to old songs and bringing added dimension to traditional characters. But there is also an excitement and reckless abandon that can be had in creating new plays and musicals, fleshing out undeveloped stories and giving voice to unknown characters. Bart Chateau has had a career on both sides of that fence when it comes to regional work and national tours, as well as both on and off Broadway. I seem to gravitate for some reason to these kind of new things. And, you know, I did a workshop or a lab, developmental lab of October Sky. And, and you know, of course, Superhero as well. And several Broadway shows that I had, like The Civil War, Hands in a Hard Body. Um, I love it the same as going back to, I mean, I loved joining the cast of Les Miserables when I first joined the cast in San Francisco. You know, the tour had been running for, of course, two years. And to fly out to San Francisco and, and to meet the cast and start rehearsals and watching the show every night, I love that. I did that with the National Tour of Cats. And I like the fact that I can put my own spin on shows that have been running for years as well. Like when I played Gus Grout Tiger, I can put my own spin. And then when I came in to do Les Mis, Jason Moore was like, Bart, stop trying to sound like Colm Wilkinson, just be <laughs> you. They're like, no, Bart, we just want to see your take on it. And so they just allowed me, because they've been running for so many years, and I'd seen every incarnation of it. So they hired me literally for just being me and bringing my own spin to the proceedings. Bart and I first met about four years ago doing a new musical adaptation of Treasure Island at the Merry-Go-Round Playhouse, now known as the Rev Theatre Company. Bart magnificently played Long John Silver, and I, well... For me, it was a low point in my professional career, but we'll get to that later. But since that show, he and I have become good friends as well as audition buddies. <laughs> That's pretty much a loving term given to describe those who are constantly brought in for the same roles. In other words, competition. He and I have both gone in for shows like the Off-Broadway World premiere of Superhero, a big regional production of the farce comedy Lend Me a Tenor both of which he booked, of course. <laughs> but it's not just the theater casting directors that pit us against each other. It's in television as well. Well, we ended up at a blacklist audition for some henchman dude. And, you know, I look like Conan O'Brien uh, on a bad day. And, and you look like, I, I don't know, I mean... 
no, not like Conan O'Brien, but a much handsomer version of Conan O'Brien. I'm like, and you're like six foot tall, and I have to. I mean, you're taller than me. You're, you're, you're a beautiful man. You've got this gorgeous, mellifluous voice, and it's like, why and why is Patrick? at this audition with me. I, I, I'm, I'm confounded by this. Well, comparison is actually what I wanted to talk about because we certainly see other people getting and doing the things we want to do and how that kind of plays with us in the audition room, but also in our careers. Yeah, and I think looking at it from this point of view, I went in for war paint when I first initially had the audition, initially had the audition for the team. And... Um, uh, I, I think this is when they were starting just before they went to Chicago, they were casting it. And, uh, and I went in for several roles like I always do. And I happened to see a Broadway veteran in there who was going in for the same role. And his name is Michael X Martin. And I'm a big admirer of Michael's stuff. He's got like 27 million Broadway credits. And I'm like, and he went in before me and I was just like, there's no possible way I'm going to get this. But I look at this every single time and I go, wow, I'm literally in the same room with this incredible actor who I have so much admiration for, who's got like 20,000 Broadway credits and he's, uh, so I'm in good company. So I kind of try to um, uh, look at it from that perspective instead of like, well, because I've had other actors look at me and you know, that I know that I was competing with them for a role or being seen. And, you know, they would act like they didn't see me or they wouldn't, they wouldn't say much to me or, um, but I say it as like, wow, you know, I am on a really incredible level of playing field with the best and the brightest and the greatest of my industry. Um, And it's really just about what you bring to the room so that's the way I see it. And how do you deal with the fact when that other person that you're trying to be very gracious and giving to when they get the role? Um, you know, I just, you just have to know that the creative team knows what's best for that particular role and what's best for that particular world and that the best person got the job. Because, you know, you can put five of us in the same room and uh, and the talent is pretty much the same. I mean, the, the, profi- the, the proficiency of the talent is pretty much the same. And it's, we're all on a level playing field. So at this point, when it comes to everybody being so super uber talented, it comes down to this, this the most minuscule detail. And it could, it could have nothing to do with, most of the time it has nothing to do with your talent whatsoever. So it's just whether you fit into the world of the play or, you know, I mean, also sometimes it's, it could be a relationship thing, whether the directors worked with you or not. I mean, everybody, if I was to mount a Broadway show or to direct a Broadway show or produce it, I would bring in people that I trust and I know and that I've worked with and that I know will always deliver. So... At the end of the day, it has nothing to do with you and that we're all in the same boat and we're all just as talented as anyone else. And, you know. but, but in general, I know that 
auditioning is a numbers game. And for mm-hmm. me, I, I'm as creative as I am, I, I also have a mathematical mind. And so for me, numbers, statistics, that kind of thing actually helps me. And so I know that the more I audition, the more chance, the more statistically probable it is that I'll book something. Right. So it's a matter of just keep going and keep doing it. I do internalize it sometimes because I certainly know those auditions where uh, I could have done that a little bit better or, oh, if I'd made that different choice. But when you're in the room, you're making the choice that comes in that moment. If you're really being present in the audition room, then you're making a choice based upon that moment. And it is tough to not internalize it sometimes because we are presenting something that's so that's so personal, that's so, well, I've worked hours on this and this is what I do and this is how I present this and this is the character that I think it is. Sure. What do you think? No, that's not what it, that's not what it is. Ooh, okay, sorry. And that's not really what it means either. I'm sure people appreciate the work that actors put into because, you know, there, there could be another uh, project down the line that the casting person is like, well, he's maybe not right for this particular thing, but we're going to bring it back for that. So I think it's always about putting those hours into the audition, putting those hours into creating your making really strong choices this is our job. Our job as actors is to audition. That's, you know, and without, and unfortunately, without expecting any results. Mm-hmm. And if you get a result and the result is booking a job, then that's just extra icing on the cake. And I know it's really easy to say that, you know, there's a lot of TV stuff that I put out there and, you know, I was seen for Mindhunter several times and I love that show so much on Netflix and really had a great, uh, two great characters that I was seen for and, the tapes were amazing. And, and, you know, and I always go back and I do look at who they actually cast, especially when it comes to TV and film. And I, I, I really make a habit to do that, Patrick. I really do. I go back. I said, you know, and I go back and look at my tape. I'm very clinical about hmm, this. Yeah. And I go back, I go IMDB. I look at the episode and I said, who do they cast? I'm very interested. And then I watch the episode and I'm like, that makes sense. That makes sense. It's, it's just as good. And, and he, he looks more the part he, it create, he's created in the world. I mean, he's just filling that world more than I possibly could. And so it's, it's really good to go back and see who they cast. It, it mitigates the kind of um, a pain it could put an actor under. <laughs> and sometimes you might go back and go, well, you know, they really made a poor choice in that. But yeah, I was I just about to say, because sometimes they choose someone, it's like, uh, I think I could have done that better. Yeah, uh, but I'm not always with that, especially with TV and film stuff too. And the people with more experiences, more IMDB credits as well. But but I, I am, I'm very curious to go back because after several months and the episode is aired, I'm kind of over my hurt a little bit of like not getting it. (laughs) So I want to be a little bit more objective about it. And so whether it's auditions for the stage or the screen, Bart has certainly learned a lot from those experiences. For example, he may not have booked the initial Warpaint audition, but was eventually brought back in and landed a role in the musical, starring Broadway icons Patti LuPone and Christine Ebersole. Here's former guest on the podcast and original cast member Douglas Sills in an interview with the Goodman Theater talking about war paint. 
So it's funny and it's dynamic and it's fun to look at and the lyrics are fast and funny and interesting and the rhyme scheme is unexpected and, and the music is really catchy and beautiful and you have two performers also at the top of their game. That's just a rarity because you get to see these two artists who are, they really know their stuff. Bart himself had a unique experience with the show and particularly Patti Lapone. God bless the folks of Warpaint. And, you know, because we had Patty and Christine. And when I came in, I came in the last six weeks of the show. And Patty was in a lot of pain because she had to have the hip surgery. And um, all of my scenes were with Patty. And I'd never met Patty before. I was very, I heard some horror stories about her. And this is one of the situations where it was like, I literally was staged by the, by the team to be very, it's, I called it patty proof. So I had to stand a certain way because, and, and there was one scene where all my scenes were with her. I played an attorney in two different scenes. And um, one scene, she was in bed. So Patty is a very diminutive woman. She's not very tall and I'm six foot. And so, you know, they had to kind of stage me so I wouldn't get in front of Patty or put my hand in front of her when I was lifting a paper. And so I was, that was very, very constrained, but I was still able to come in and, and do a bunch of characters and voices and things like that. And they were like really open to it. Hmm. I was taking over for Chris Hoke, who actually took over for Doug, Doug Sills. And, um, and I got to play a bunch of different roles, but at the same time, it was still very Patty proofed as well. So, I've been very lucky, Patrick, the fact that I haven't been as constrained as, as some actors have with being cast into revivals or being cast into shows that have been running forever. And, mm -hmm. and so, but, you know, I just, I, I mean, I would just encourage actors just to come in with your own stuff and just do the work. And you know what? They'll cut it if they don't like it. But, you know, Michael Greif let me explore and he let me, he let me do my own take than in, in war paint and it had been running for months and even in Chicago and they had heard it over and over the same lines over and over again. But I come in as a, you know, as, as a certain character and they're like, yeah, th this is okay. This works. And Patty appreciated it. John Dossett appreciated it. Everybody in the cast appreciated me coming in and having my own little take on it. And I wasn't afraid to do it, even though there were certain constraints blocking wise. And so um, when a couple of friends of mine who were musical theater, you know, uh, aficionados knew that I was going into the show, I said, I'm, I'm really, really scared about this because I, I don't really know what to do. And a friend of mine talked to a friend of his that had worked with Patty and he left me a message and said, you know, Bart, most important thing about Patty is just, just do the work. It's just, don't try to suck up to her. Don't try to ingratiate yourself to her. Don't try to be her fucking friend. Just do the fucking work. And I was like, wow, that's the best advice I ever had. And you know what I did? I did the freaking work. And I just dug into it. And I, and I did. And she appreciated it. And I treated her like, and you know what? And everybody was kind of, a lot, you know, people in that cast, they sometimes would walk on eggshells with her. But 
you know, she would come out of her dressing room. She's like, what are you doing for Mother's Day? I said, I'm going to get drunk, ass, shit face, drunk off my ass. I mean, like what I would say, whatever came to my mind and she would just laugh because I would just treat her like a normal human being, a normal person. I would crack, crack jokes. And, and that helped me to survive that experience. And it, it, I came out um, so grateful and, and the work was, was fine. And, um, and it was an incredible experience working with this amazing, this amazing actress every night doing these scenes with her. I think it's so important to, as you said, focus on the work, because if we're nervous about this role, maybe we're nervous about, you know, being with a star like Patti Lapone, whatever the case may be, anything that can bring nervousness or uh, indecision to us, if we focus on the work and do that, then, yeah. then we're able to yeah. kind of push aside those other distractions. It was the greatest survival technique that anyone has ever given me. And that was big too, because if I screwed up with her, I mean, the first time I met Patty was 45 minutes before I went on stage with her. Oh, oh my God. The curtain was oh closed. Gosh. She came out in her, literally her nightgown. <laughs> and she was so nice to me. And the blocking was very specific. And she said, Bart, I don't really know who you are. Um, I haven't Googled you. I don't know your work. <laughs> and she Patty said, Patty, it's not a big deal. I'm just, let's just get this done. I'm about ready to go on with you. And, and, uh, and we went to the blocking and she was great. And she said, this is, this is fantastic. And it was fantastic from that moment on. But I think, the, you know, meeting her for the first time, you know, doing the scenes with her, uh, was pretty daunting, but had I not been so trained by that creative team, by the stage management, um, and listened to everything that they said whilst bringing in my own creative juices, mm -hmm. I would have died. I, I would have, I would have been slaughtered by her. She would have left me into yeah. a, 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 just a, just a mush on stage. So I was prepared. I was well-trained. I focused on the work. And so, and you know, and when it comes down to it, listen, when, especially the stage, Patrick, I don't care if you're a huge star, you know, you know, we're all in this together. We're all, we all have one common goal is to do the best show possible. And my goal was to, was to not do anything crazy, but actually to help tell the story with Warping. But also to still bring my creative ideas to the table. And, you know, people could talk about, oh, you know, don't, don't look her in the eye and don't do this and don't do this. And I say, screw it. Teach, you treat this person like a person, do the work, and they will respect you. And that's all, as far as I'm concerned, that's all the little time that I worked with Patty, that's all she ever wanted, is she wanted people just to take the work seriously. And any sort of crazy stories you might, they might have about her is maybe because the person didn't take the work as seriously. She sets the paradigm very high, and you have to meet that. It's mutual respect. If, if my name is on the marquee, I would want people to work as hard as I am, or even harder. Yeah, because I worked with Faith Prince in First Wives Club, and Faith Prince has similar stories, quote-unquote, that you hear about her, but it was an absolute joy to work with her, and Patti LuPone may be the same in the fact that she will do what she needs to do to make the show right, to make the character right, and she and she's going to speak her mind, but it's an all-in service to the show. Yes. She's not... 
Faith Prince spoke up in our show, but it was to make that moment, that scene better. It's like, let's do this. Let's try this. And if, if a, cast, a costuming thing didn't work, then she would yeah, mention that yeah. as well. So she was very much about, and maybe because of their stature, they, they want to be seen in the best light possible. I get that. But at the same time, they want the show to succeed. Unfortunately, I wasn't there during the beginning stages, but I did talk to people from the cast and how uh, proactive Christine and Patty were in the development of their characters. And, and sometimes they just wouldn't agree with, with what the character would say in the dialogue, and they would have to have a little powwow, and, and rehearsals would stop. And they would have to go up to their, your, you know, their private moments to discuss. And it, it's for the betterment of the show. And, um, and, and those are two artists who are not afraid to speak up and not afraid to say, listen, this doesn't feel right. And I think every actor, I, whether you're a star or not, I think as actors, we have to have, we have to get our power back. We have to have our power contained and we have to carry our power with us and we have to utilize our power when we need it at the most opportune times that's for the betterment of the show. So if a young person is coming into a show you know, you're not a diva. I mean, if you have a legitimate, justified reason why you don't agree with a certain thing or a certain thing can be altered, whether it's a line or something like that, you know, and I think actors are so afraid to be in their power and they're so afraid mm -hmm. to stand in their power. And if there's anything that I can do to, to help others, and I, and I do a lot of workshops, I love teaching young people and it's really to stand in, the, in your power with your ideas, with your own personality, and because everybody's afraid they're gonna get, they're gonna get fired or you know, whatever's gonna happen. Are they gonna be you know, besieged by other actors who are gonna think they're divas or whatever? And yeah. as long as you know with your own self-integrity that what you are doing is for the, justifiably for the betterment of the show, and for the betterment of the character to tell that story, everybody has a right to speak up. And I think there's a lot of scared actors out there, even on our level, that are afraid to always speak up. And, and I can, you know, there's one situation where I was afraid of losing a job, but because I tuned into the work and my creativity, um, that job lasted for 14 years. And, and I almost lost mm. that job because they didn't think I was right. They thought I was the right, the wrong person for it. But through self-preservation and through creativity and through just doing the work, I found a way to make it work. And uh, that was one of the longest running gigs I ever had in my entire career, which is uh, I'm still paying dividends. And it was through Trans-Siberian Orchestra, the symphonic rock band that I've been involved with since 2002. The Trans-Siberian Orchestra was created by writer, producer, and musician Paul O'Neill, who has had a wide and varied career in the music industry, from being the guitarist in touring productions of Jesus Christ Superstar and Hair, to working behind the scenes in management and production of artists like Aerosmith, ACDC, Def Leppard, and Michael Bolton. But then O'Neill got the chance to form his own band. In the um, early 90s, uh, we were approached by Atlantic about starting our own band instead of writing and producing for others. But we wanted to do something completely different. And um, when they asked what that meant was, I just said I wanted to build on you know, everybody that I worshipped instead of take it way further. Um, 
wanted to do mostly rock operas because that gave a third dimension to the music, um, you know, which the, it was a code the Who broke. Um, the marriage of classical and rock from bands like, you know, Queen, Emerson Lake and Palmer, yes. Um, the over-the-top live production from bands like, you know, Pink Floyd. While they have sold more than 10 million albums, it is on the road that TSO has become one of the world's top touring artists of the past decade. A $20 million production that has played to 100 million people in more than 80 cities around the world. And so, of course, to front such a grand production, just one lead singer isn't enough. So um, TSO basically has you know, 24 lead singers, so whenever we're in concert or recording an album, we always have the right voice um, to create the alchemy or the magic to bring a song to life. Because writing a great song is only half the battle. Then you need the right singer to you know, uh, bring the words to life. And Bart was chosen to be one of those lead singers a vast departure from the theater and national touring life of Cats and Les Mis. Uh, I, th I think that's what makes me, my experience, so unique than other Broadway actors is, um, uh, I, I call myself, I wasn't a crossover actor, I was a cross-under actor. <laughs> because Trans-Siberian Orchestra 2012, we were still doing theaters, and now this has turned into this extravaganza every Christmas where you got 10,000 people a show. And so touring with that group of people, number one, it's a completely different uh, uh, dynamic because they're all musicians. So it's, it's, it's a completely different mindset. Um, these guys come from rock and roll bands, backgrounds, uh, you know, studio musicians, uh, you know, it's, it's really sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That's, that is the group of people that you are touring with uh, that come from, but, you know, Trans-Siberian Orchestra is sort of the, 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 the Mormon Tabernacle Choir tour of that version. <laughs> you know, it's a very family-oriented show, and we're trying to really spread a family message and a, also a Christian message as well. So, you know, I'm not saying that these guys didn't buy, but, but yeah, that tour life was pretty crazy. But it also, it was also one of those things that kept me from my Broadway career as well, because it was all my agents were like, Bart, when are you going to quit this, this, this rock and roll band? Because it's getting in the way of more possibilities uh, during the, 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 the casting season. So, so literally, these, uh, this tour would go on for nine weeks. And it was like a bus and truck. And um, you would hit a city every day. It was kind of like a non-equity tour, but but you got paid a lot more money than that, and it was it was a lot more visibility, and you were you know playing bigger theaters. But you li would literally roll into a city at four or five o'clock. You'd have a sound check. Um, you do you'd have dinner. The, the catering person would follow you guys us everywhere we went. Of course, be 11, 12 tractor trailers following us with the whole crew, and then they hired local crew as well. Um, I mean, what went into this show is unbelievable. And, uh, and so we would do the show at night after that, we would literally, this is what, what you don't do on Broadway. You would literally go to the bus or go to the dressing room, have a couple of beers, go back up to the concourse and then sign autographs for two hours with a thousand people in the huh. line. And so you do the show for two and a half hours. The show is literally two minutes. Now it's two hours and 45 minutes. Sign autographs for two hours. By the time you get back on the bus, you're freaking starving. And it's like one o'clock, one thirty in the morning, and then you just crash. You wake up, you're in the next city. 
So it is that for literally mm. six weeks. Now this thing has come into sounds exhausting. It, it's unbelievably exhausting, and I haven't done it in four years because I decided that I wanted to pursue more on my Broadway career and. And plus, I think I've kind of aged out of the whole thing. And, you know, I really wasn't the type to be in this band anyway. I'm not, I can sing rock, I can sing pop, but I'm not like those, those guys are just like crazy Steve Perry, Whaler kind of guys. And, you know, I don't have the long hair and the tattoos and all that. So I never really kind of fit in with that group, but they had respect for me because. And was that part of the reason? Was that part of the reason that you mentioned that they wanted to? Yeah, it was one part of the reasons why when I first auditioned for them that I I just didn't have that rock voice. And they were gonna they were literally gonna fire me. And this is in the beginning stages of TSO when we were rehearsing in, in uh, New Haven and and it was such it was on a such a smaller scale and they didn't know it was gonna turn into this huge extravaganza every year. And, um, but the song that I was supposed to sing was called Old City Bar. It was literally a seven to eight minute song. It was a story song. It was kind of like a Jim Croce time in a bottle. It had that kind of folksy sound to it. It was just me and a guitar, an acoustic guitar. So when I was first cast, I, I started rehearsals with them, and uh, Paul O'Neill, who's the, kind of the brainchild of that, who has since passed, you know, he's he's kind of like he looks like Tim Burton, uh, the director. You know, he was he has long black hair. He wears the same clothes every day. Like he's got like wears white button down shirt with with black motorcycle pants and, and black motorcycle boots and. You know, he's a very eccentric guy, but brilliant, sunglasses all day long, uh, but such a beautiful, beautiful soul. But so this is the guy that hired me. I come in and I, we start rehearsals and I start singing to this song and they're, they're kind of having a powwow. And then um, I'm like, whoa, I go back to the dressing room thinking, I think I'm, I'm going to most likely get fired unless they do something different. So that particular day, this is where I'm saying, I'm getting to the time where it's just like, I started being creative. I decided to make this guy a character who was singing this song. So I decided to make him into this old jazz musician, sort of bebop guy who was a big, you know, jazz musician back in the 50s. And so I decided to dress up like this homeless guy who used to be this jazz musician. I did this during the break and built this character and decided to. Now, was this before they had come to you, or you this just? This was came up- after. This is after I was hired, and I was in New Haven rehearsing with these guys. And the first day of rehearsing, of going at rehearsal with a whole band, with everybody, uh, uh, I was stuck there, and I was like, "I'm, I'm going to lose my job." So that particular day, I came back. I know it sounds crazy, but I decided to dress up like this homeless guy, and I got some costumes. Um, I think it might be a couple days later, and I I just created this this homeless character. His name is uh, Gerald McNally that I created, and um, I went through the lunch line, the catering line, in character on on a, on a break. The band was going through lunch line, and I went into this lunch line as as the character. Well, they didn't recognize me, and then once we got into rehearsals, I went on stage as the character. And, um, and sang the song like this character. 
and they absolutely loved it. So the, the whole thing that started this was the, the first time they heard me saw, sing, they're like, this, is, this doesn't sound right. This, this can't be right. So I tried to do something with my voice to sound more, more rocky or more like, you know, raspy or whatever. And then Paul was like, uh, Paul said, listen, why don't we put him in a jacket, a coat, an overcoat? And once Paul said that, then I created this whole character of this homeless guy, which morphed into Gerald McNally. And uh, he's, he morphed from 2002 to 2015 into this character. And so it literally saved my job. And so I had 15, like close to uh, uh, 2002 to 2015 on and off with him. And so the character morphed into this thing where I decided that I would go out into the stadiums as the character before the show. I would have a pre-show. I wouldn't ask people for money, but I would be in character with my bags of uh, plastic bottles. And I would just roam through the entire concourse and through the entire stadium in character and go through garbage cans. And, um, and then I would sit in people's seats and I would get kicked out. And a lot of people wanted me out of the venue because they thought I was a homeless person. And then I would get up on stage and sing this incredible song about this angel and about these guys at this bar and this incredibly uplifting song. And they're like, wait a minute, that's that homeless guy. You know, wait, what's that he kicked out of the venue? And then this homeless guy shows up and sings this heartfelt song. And then I show up a half hour later in a tuxedo looking like Bart. This is what a job that I thought I was going to get fired from morphed into this. So, uh, so I mean the, you know, the life lesson is, is like bring your work, always bring your work and you know what, always bring your creativity. And, uh, it was, you know, I mean, it, it gave me so much life with TSO. I don't know if I'm finished with him or not. I mean, um, that's up for them to decide, but, um, I love to go back. I love touring with them. It does take me away from the Broadway stuff, but uh, but that was one of those situations, and I'm sure a lot of actors have that situation where you, you're going to get fired, but you decided that in order to self-preserve, you decided to do something super creative, and uh, it actually worked, and it landed. So that's kind of my claim to fame with Trans-Siberian Orchestra of doing Old City Bar, and you can see it on YouTube. If you look it up, you see tons of videos with me and yeah. character. Um, and singing this song, this seven minute song. But, but if people only knew that I almost didn't have that job because I didn't sound like I was rock and roll enough, it's pretty amazing. Have you taken the lesson that you learned from that moment of kind of basically saving your job and applied it to then the theater world? Yeah. I, you know, you turn, you turn lemons to lemonade or oranges to lemonade, <laughs> uh, you know? So Yeah because everybody's always worried about their job, especially with new stuff. And you talk about like, well, Bart, you're always gravitating to new works. And everybody is always afraid, like, oh, I'm going to get fired if I, you know, because the casting's not always solidified, <laughs> you know? Yep. So I just say, I, 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 maybe I'm just crazy enough just to kind of go with what I, what my choices are. And um, if it's too much, the director will say, stop. So I just kind of go with what, I, because I, I, I'm, you know what, we are all hired for our talent and our talent is not just our talent, but our point of view, right, Patrick? I mean, 
Mm-hmm. We all, your point of view is completely different from my point of view based on your upbringing. And you grew up in, in the South in, in Alabama or someplace like that, or right. your point of view is who you are as an actor, what you've experienced as an actor, who you visited, what, what places you visited, you know, places you, uh, people that you've had relationships with. So we're all bringing a very unique point of view to, to the work. And that's why we're being hired. You know, talent is, you know, talent, anybody has, everybody has talent and anybody can be creative. But what is your point of view? I think that's what took me the longest time to learn was that once you get to a certain place and and really, even if you're a newcomer in New York, when you're in the audition room, they assume you have a level of talent. It's what you're going to do with it. That's what sets you apart. Yeah. You know, if I if I can impart anything of words of of somewhat knowledge of my experience, you know, twenty years on on since my first show on Broadway, it would be that: do not be afraid to stand in your own power, and um, and to stand into your own creativity and express that. And a lot of actors are afraid to do that, or they want to mimic somebody else's performance. And that's, I think, that's what people, what actors need to really stick to. But there are times when we as artists can forget or lose sight of that power. We can get distracted from our own creativity and even our own talent. I mentioned earlier that production of Treasure Island, where Bart and I first met. When most of the cast came to Merry-Go-Round Playhouse to start rehearsals, I was already in a production of Crazy For You, playing a great comedic role, Bella Zangler. I I was even nominated for a local theater award for my performance. So I was doing Treasure Island rehearsals by day and crazy for you by night when Bart and the rest of the cast came to see the show. I I watched your performance and I was just like, this guy, it wasn't comic gold. It was comic silver. (laughs) You were so brilliant. (laughs) There was a scene where you just, I just had me, I was almost peeing my pants. So you were so absolutely brilliant. And I was like, I'm so, I'm so happy to be working with this guy. This guy is completely brilliant. And that's the first time I saw you. So I saw you as this comic leading man who's this, you know, this kind of, you know, physical comic comedic actor. Treasure Island, on the other hand, was a more dramatic production. And I was playing both a drunk Scottish pirate and a stalwart English captain. However, in comparison with Crazy For You, or really any shows I've ever been in, this was the roughest and most debilitating experience in my career. And the cast, including Bart, were certainly not oblivious to my constant mistakes and stumbles. By the way, I did listen to Doug Sills, and I love Doug, but I listened to his the podcast with you, and, and he said something along the lines of working with you at Adam's family. And he said, because you covered, you were understudying Lurch and several other characters. And he said, when you went on, when Patrick went on, no one worried. And I, I, I just want the audience to know that when, you know, Patrick was a part of the cast at Treasure Island, he, we were worried all the time. Yeah. Just being in a yeah. show. Oh, I, I was worried, especially that opening weekend. That opening weekend, I have to say, I mean, I can look back and somewhat laugh at it now, but at the time, yeah. I, was, I was devastated. That show, <laughs> that show 
did more to my mental psyche than than any other show. That opening weekend devastated me. I I, I was missing lines. I was missing cues. This I like nothing seemed to work right through through that last tech rehearsal opening weekend. Then finally into the second week, I think it finally started to settle in. But it that show took a while. What happened to you? I mean, looking back on it, I think that was one of the spirals that I got into. I was seeing that I was doing something wrong and I stayed in that and I thought I was not doing this right and I couldn't do this right. And I just, and so it just created a downward spiral of my own, my own mind, my own uh, emotions getting the better of me rather than getting back to, well, okay, well, let's focus back on the work. Let's get back to the character. What, what, what can I do here? What is this moment? And my emotions got the better of me. And I know that that was a big part of why that opening weekend for me was so tumultuous wow. and wasn't the best I could have presented. Well, why was that? Because because you were rehearsing, you were also doing the show at night, crazy for you at night. And then yes. was that overwhelming for you to part of it because you were kind of didn't feel like you're part of the cast because you weren't doing spending as much time as this incredible ensemble of men that we were working with. Incredible group of people. It had been years since I had done, you know, back in my summer stock days of uh, rehearsing one show during the day, doing a different show that night, and that kind of back and forth. So that wasn't new to me. And I, I mean, looking back on it, maybe that had had part to do with it. But I think that because of that double duty, I wasn't giving full attention to both. Like when I was in Crazy For You, I was still thinking about Treasure Island. When I was doing Treasure Island, I was thinking about what I had to do for Crazy. So when I was in the moment, I wasn't in the moment. I was thinking about the other show. And so neither show got my full attention, which I, and, and so even there were a few moments at which I, I, I missed a cue or a line or a costume change in Crazy For You. So once both started to intersect, I wasn't good at parsing out my energies. Okay, now I'm going to focus on this, put that mm-hmm. aside. Now I'm going to focus on this and back and forth. So I think that was one of the biggest reasons. What's the biggest takeaway that you got from that, Patrick, that whole experience? Well, I mean, it's it comes down to that word that you had mentioned before, preparation. Mm-hmm. And I think that I, once Crazy For You was open, I kind of let my guard down. And so then when Treasure Island came, then I wasn't still giving the, the credence and the diligence that I needed to crazy for you. So then that started to kind of have, you know, come apart, fray at the edges as I missed things there. And then when Treasure Island, I wasn't as prepared as I need to be because I gave the excuse, well, I'm working on this other show, so I'll focus on it later. Mm. That was my thing. Mm-hmm. I'll focus on it later. Once crazy, but by the time crazy for you was done, we had what, a week? And then, yeah, so by yeah. then I needed to be prepared. I needed to be there already. And I wasn't. And I think that it was, it was a combination of things because Brett, the director even pulled me aside. He said, what can we do oh. to help? And the thing is, I didn't even know what to do. Wow. What, what, I, I, I knew it was me. I knew what I needed. Because the rest of I your fellow cast members, all guys were all making fun of you. So which that we weren't of any help to you whatsoever. But but the thing is, yeah, but the thing is, that's what we do as fellow actors. Like, we love for those moments when someone messes up on stage and and we we laugh and we're like, oh, what were you doing? (laughs) But we weren't being, and I say we all should learn from this experience is to really be there for your your fellow man because they're really suffering. and, and, And you know what? And you walked away with the best reviews. If you read reviews at all, he walked away with the best reviews 
of the show. And but you know what? You're, you you once you got it, you were playing these incredible roles back to back. You couldn't even tell it was the same person. Your performance was stellar. So it all worked out, but <laughs> it was a running joke Oof. that your next line was line, line, line. Yeah, <laughs> yeah because we're, we're in tech rehearsal and we're going through a scene, line. I just, line. I really, I'm, I'm joking around. I think you're, you're a brilliant comedic actor, but all I want to say is that there's, there's a few people that if I see you in the audition room, I'll be like, oh God, what's that guy doing here? Um, but with somebody like you, Patrick, even though I do make fun, I have a great deal of respect for your talent. So, um, so when I see you at, at my audition, <laughs> at the job that I'm going to eventually book, right. I am always very happy to see you. Oh, well, so. and same. And, and coming into Treasure Island, not knowing you, I, I all I knew of you was as Long John Silver. It's like, you know, a pirate, this strong and brooding and, you know, staunch stalwart men. You became, in the, in the dressing room, you became one of the most garrulous persons. And, and you and Leland just like chatted back and forth, back and forth, crack jokes and tried to outwit each other. And I was like, I got I to gotta lead this cast. I got to be a pirate. I got to lead this cast. So you didn't hear much from me um, because, you know, when you're saddled with a lead role as well, there is a responsibility. And, and you know, I've worked with a, some, a couple incredible guys like Rob Evan and Doug Sills. And, you know, those guys are real leaders. And we need more of those people in our community. And we need more leaders in our Broadway communities, to people who can lead casts like a Doug Sills. Uh, we really need strong people to do this. And so there is a responsibility when you're leading, when you're playing a lead in a cast like that to, um, to, to do all the right things and to behave accordingly uh, because you are going to be called upon. And you, I'm sure, have been called upon to lead, you know, the cast of Annie where you did at Axelrod. You're leading a cast there. Right. You're leading a cast when you played Robert in Bridges of Madison County. So it's not just showing up and punching the time card and doing the work. It is also about, you know, taking care of each other and, and being a leader yeah. and making sure everybody is, you know, is, is, is doing okay to be able to uh, tell that story. So I, I don't know how you feel about because Doug, Doug the, the podcast with Doug was so amazing and he's, he's a natural born leader. And I don't know what you think about that as, of how you've had to lead casts and and what the responsibility was as well, how important that is. I think leadership can come in many forms. And for me, uh, specifically with uh, with Bridges that you mentioned and Annie, Fun Home was the same way. I was dealing with a lot of younger performers. And so I think being an example, being someone, because sometimes they would they would ask me a question and like, all right. Okay, good. You're asking these questions. And even though it's something I've known for 30 years, they're just now discovering that sure. question and realizing that you're there to kind of guide these new people into a business that, you know, in some ways we just kind of know old mm -hmm, hat now, mm -hmm. but uh, it, it's a matter of keeping, keeping that fresh and, and keeping the perspective of that newness and freshness of, of this industry. Yeah. Sure. Unlike a superhero, we had Kyle MacArthur, who was, you know, this, the show is literally resting on his, sh his shoulders and not so much as, uh, as, as Bryce and Kate's, 
uh, shoulders, but on this poor kid's shoulders, you know, he's still in college. He's balancing going to school and doing this lead role. And there's so much hype about the show because it's Tom Kitt. It's a new musical. And I have since talked to Kyle about it. We've had a little Zoom meeting with some other kids who are fascinated with the musical. They're obsessed with it. And I said, Kyle, let's go on. I'm just going to kind of be a little host and talk to you about this, this process. And, and, um, and so I asked Kyle, how did you deal with this? And how did you, how did you deal with this kind of pressure and all these changes and lyrical changes, lyric changes? And, and he, he was so unbelievably stalwart in his preparation and, um, and, and this, this, this show, you saw the show, it literally rested on this kid's shoulders. And, and we had another young, another young person, Jake, as well. And these guys, it was, so, it was so cute because they had never had their names in a playbill before. And, you know, and, and old timers like Nate Stampley and Bryce and I and Tom Sesma were all crammed in this small little dressing room at second stage. And then we had these three young kids um, and uh, Pablo, who was an understudy for the two young roles, but they watched every move we made. You know, we lived with each other for six months under those, under the very small confines, but these kids were watching everything that we did, everything that we said. And I think it helped them get, navigate themselves through a very high end show that there was, we're getting a lot of, a lot of, um, uh, you know, press from. So just watching us and the way we behaved and the way we interacted with each other and the way we prepped and warmed up and uh, was also, like you said, leading by example without setting them down and going, okay, Jake, this is how it goes. We just led by being who we were, being the professionals that we were. And that was, and even Kyle was said, you know, Kyle said to this day, it's like working with professionals like you guys, like you and Tom and Bryce and Nate was, uh, was invaluable for me. In fact, in an interview with Broadway.com for their Live at Five series, Kyle MacArthur talked about working with the cast of Superhero. It's the greatest possible gift. I mean, I could ask for They're firstly so, so gifted performers. I mean, so smart. Um, talking about learning and when you do a scene with them, they bring so much honesty that you have no choice but to, to give that same honesty back because they're, they're such giving as performers. Everyone on this project, the, the creative team and everyone is so giving of, of themselves that it's, I mean, it's just such a gift to be on stage with them. They're so talented and they're so warm and guiding for me, like helping me and the amount of trust they've put in me to help tell this story. And being in a show like the Adams Family Tour, the audiences loved it. The show was was funny and wonderful. And so Doug leading in a show like that, it it kind of, the, the goodness and the uh, great reviews for the show that we were getting on tour helped Doug be a great leader. I think that was part of it too. I think it can be harder when a show is not doing as well, when it, maybe it doesn't get great reviews. You know, I mean, Superhero for all of its hype, in a lot of reviews, it didn't quite meet that hype that it can be tough to be yeah. a part of those casts. Yeah. And, you know, and, and the thing is, is, you know, we did not get great reviews from superhero and, but was it ever mentioned in the dressing room? Absolutely not. It was a, it was not mentioned. Um, and I talked to Kyle since then, how did you deal with these not great reviews and how did you go on? How did you do the next performance after that? And it was something that was never discussed among the cast members and I think it was the best way we can talk about it now. 
I think everybody was crestfallen and heartbroken because it, it, we were all putting our hearts and souls. And, and even Kyle, who had been with it from the very beginning, and everybody was hurt by the lackluster response um, from that. But most importantly, it wasn't discussed. And, and we continued to do a great, everybody continued to do the great show that they did, that they were doing um, w- without that kind of negativity. So I think that's also very important as well. So, you know, through the, through those ups and downs of, of being in great shows and being in shows that aren't received well, what is it that keeps you going? I mean, have you ever considered doing something else? Did, was there ever any, any moment or time it's like, I can't do this anymore that you wanted to take another path? Yeah, I thought about it for like a second because um, I have other interests as well. I mean, you know, I would love to write. I would love to, you know, I mean, it, it, you know, there's people out there that, that, that do all this write and direct like Hunter Foster. Or, you know, he does, he's like a renaissance man. So there's other things you can do. Did I ever think, like, I, you know, the, the podcast with Doug, Doug, consider, Doug considered leaving the business for a while and he, and he did. Uh, he had family responsibilities. Um, with me, um, yeah, I mean, I've you know I've gone through divorces, a divorce, and the death of my father, and 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 through through those years uh, as well. And I've t- I've taken some hiatuses off of Broadway, and in the lowest points, you do think about there's got to be something else I can do. And uh, but you know I've got a wife who's like, well, Bart, you still need to win that Tony. And then maybe you can quit after that. <laughs> so she has it placed in the shelf for my Tony. Right. So you have, a, you have a nagging wife who's like, no, you can't quit. You're not going to quit. So you have somebody like that who's constantly has belief in you that you are great. And, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I've, listen, I've, I've, I've battled with anxiety. I've battled with chemical dependency. I've, cam- I've battled with all of this. And, uh, you know, loss of father, estrangement from my son, all of this. I know this is heavy stuff, but, you know, I kind of feel I'm just crazy enough to stay in the business because I think it's all a numbers thing, like you said, because if I'm the last man standing or you and I, there are, maybe I'll just, you know, maybe I will yep, get that yep. role. Maybe they'll call you. <laughs> so a process of elimination, process of elimination. But I thought about all that stuff. And, you know, and, and it's, a, it's a work-life balance like I talked to you about before. And the theater has always been kind of my mistress. And it's always come first mm-hmm. before my relationships with my first wife and um, until I got married a second wife and she was like, no, you're not going to go on tour because then we'll get a divorce. So I was like, yeah, you're probably right because we need to spend time together because if, you know, the, the tour life can take you out of really being, having that one-on-one everyday stuff with your family and your relationships. And some people can make it work, but with somebody like me, with my personality, I'm a hundred percent, I full, full force work into um, my projects and I put everything I can into it. And it's always been kind of like, well, you know what? Maybe all these other relationships will fall by the wayside and I'm going to leave this relationship in my wake, but I still have the theater, you know, which is not Mm -hmm. a very healthy way to look at it because 
relationships are the most important. And I've learned a very valuable lesson from that. You know, family is important and you can strike a work-life balance. And there is a way to do that. And as I get older, I'm able to, to it's like, Bart, you don't have to put 100% into this particular project, you know? And so the rest right. of my personal life doesn't suffer. I, Patrick, I made so many sacrifices for my career at the behest and the cost of people that I love that I'm no longer in relationships with because of my behavior and because of that sacrifice and leaving relationships by the wayside and, and not nurturing those relationships. I'm not blaming theater for that. It was a choice that I made. And, it, it, and I'm telling you, it's not well, mm-hmm. wasn't the healthiest choice I could have made because at the end of the day, it comes down to relationships with your family and with your friends and nurturing those relationships. And, um, and most importantly, being your word. And, uh, and so thinking about quitting this business, if I ever thought about quitting this business, it was always like, well, listen, I already sacrificed all these other relationships and they're all in my wake. It's like, why would I do that? I'm gonna, I, I, can't, I can't go back. I can't go back. I move. I need to move forward. That's an interesting way to, to look continue. at it. Because look, look, look what it costs. Look what it costs me. So I'm kind of crazy like that, even though it's like, well, you do the same thing over and over again. That's the definition of crazy. But no, it's interesting that you bring that up because you, you can't go back and fix relationships a lot of times. Sometimes the, that door is closed. Those people have moved on and you're not going to get that relationship back. But... Right. The theater, on the other hand, you can always go back to that. Say, you know, like 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 Douglas, he took yeah. a three-year stint and worked on other things, and then came back. The theater is yeah. is is a it's a fickle relationship in the fact that that you're not always being cast and you're not always getting the work that you want, but you can come and go from it because it will like you some days and not like you other days, and that cycle continues. But a relationship needs that constant attention, devotion, respect, love, and those are things that you have to keep nourishing even if, even if your acting career isn't going where you want to go. The, the relationships that we have with people are the ones that yeah, maybe you can't get back. And I know that I've made those decisions in my own life. There have been relationships that I've had where, no, I, I need to go do this, and, and you'll just have to understand. And depending on the partner that you have, depending on the type of relationship you have, yes, you can come and go like that, but it takes that person agreeing to it as well. You can't impose it upon them. Right, right. And when I married Amy... Amy is Jewish. We have a kosher home. Uh, and I made one pact to her that I have not broken. We've been together for 13 years. I will always be with you on the Jewish holidays. And I'll have it written in my contract. Because I know I remember Doug talking about that, mm-hmm. what happened with he, his He took off every aunt. Jewish holiday. So, And that was something that, fortunately, the producers uh, allowed him to do. I mean, it also gave us understudies some, some work as well. So it was kind of good all the way around. Sure. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that is one pact that I made to my wife. And believe me, I have not stuck to my words many for most of my life. And now I'm now it's, it's so it's a huge part of my chemical makeup is being your word. But I did what's one thing that I just said to my wife, as I said to Amy, I said, I will always be with you on the Jewish holidays. And I, I will take a gig if it's, if you know, because if the producers are not acknowledging this, this uh, religious holiday, and they're putting the shows on just to make money, and it's it, it's it actually smack dab in the middle of a Jewish holiday. I I will not take that job, or I'll ask to be off that day, or ask an understudy to go on, or whatever. But that's one pact that I made with my wife um, that I'm sticking to, and you know, and so that was an assurance, almost like a liability that I made with Amy. Mm-hmm. To say I'm serious about this relationship, I'm serious about spending my life with you, and serious about nurturing our relationship. And this is one time when my 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 business and my yeah. career will not come before us. Um, and so that's one thing I've done, and I still I still continue to do it to this day. What's been your relationship with theater? How has it helped or hurt your own personal life and relationships? Bart has brought up a lot for us to think about. He and I were very honest and open today about our own shortcomings, both on stage and off. Because as much as we are artists and creators, we are human first and foremost, connected to others, whether we like it or not. And and it's those relationships that have to be a part of our creative journey, no matter where it takes us. One way to listen to Bart's journey as a singer is by going to the Win Me Singers and Songwriters playlist on Spotify. This is a collection of some of the guests that have come on the podcast. Andrew Lippa and Georgia Stitt, as well as artists like Caitlin Kinnanen, Michael Kilgore, Douglas Sills, and Bart, of course. Go to spotify.whyillnevermakeit.com to listen to these talented performers and writers. That's spotify.whyillnevermakeit.com. Well, thank you for joining me and Bart today. And I'd love to keep the conversation going on Twitter and Instagram, where you can connect with me at Podcast. And coming up next is the final five bonus episode with Bart, as he gives even more insights. Until then, I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and this is Why I'll Never Make It. 